You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. Genesis chapter 33. We've read through 34 for this morning, um, but we actually uh, are going to pick up in chapter 33 where we left off last week. Um, Go ahead and throw our slideshow notes up here. If you want to follow along with our slideshow and if you want to keep up with the notes on your own, um, and reference back to them, we do make the slides available through our Google Drive. You can access that link in um, the bulletin. So I encourage you to do that. Um, if you'd like to access these later, they'll be available on the screen for you this morning. Um, we've been talking about reconciliation, and specifically in the context of Esau and Jacob coming back together, We've emphasized the fact that believers, because we've been reconciled to God, we're to pursue reconciliation with others as conflicts arise, demonstrating the same forgiveness and restoration they have enjoyed themselves. So believers have a responsibility to reconcile with other people, believers and non-believers. Why? Because we've been reconciled to God and we're to be an extension of what reconciliation looks like. And so as conflicts arise, and we said uh, the past two weeks, whether we're the one at fault or whether somebody else is at fault, we're called to take the initiative to reconcile. It's on us. It's our job as believers to reconcile. The Bible says that if we know we've, we've uh, got somebody who has a fault against us, we go and make it right. If we know that, that uh, somebody has done something to us, that we go and make it right. We don't wait on them to come and resolve it. And then I shared with you last week, practical application, there was an individual outside of our church that I needed to reconcile with, that for me to continue in my pursuit of Christ and to be the example that I need to be, it necessitates me reconciling with him, and we've started that process. And so challenged you last week to, uh, to examine and to uh, spend some time reflecting, is there anyone in your life that you need to reconcile with Uh, And there may be somebody in your life that doesn't even know that you need to reconcile with them, that you need to inform them that either they've done something to you or you've done something to them and reconciliation needs to happen. Which brings us to the count today, Genesis 33 and 34. We continue our theme of reconciliation, talking about reconciling with enemies. Because while there's been strife with Jacob and Esau, family members, brothers needing to come back together. In Genesis 34, we have an incident that occurs where the Canaanites step in and violate the Israelites, violate uh, Jacob's daughter, and restitution needs to happen. Reconciliation needs to happen. And um, the, the, the scene plays out in a way that I think is inappropriate. We're going to talk about that and potentially how it could have played out in a way where God could have been honored. We'll pick up, though, in Genesis chapter 33. Um, Esau, you'll remember, wants Jacob to come back to Sire with him. Jacob says no, offers to leave people with him to guide him. Jacob says no, says I'll meet up with you at some point. Verse 17, but Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Succoth. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan on his way from Padanaram. And he camped before the city, and from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. There he erected an altar and called it El Elohi Israel. This, if you read this, it sounds very similar to Lot and him going about pitching his tents towards Sodom. Because you have here Jacob Uh, pitching his tent before the city. It says he camped before the city. He he purchased a piece of property. He's close enough to be within sight of the city. Um, 
Now, most commentators agree and believe that, that Jacob had a place that he was supposed to go, and that was to Bethel. You'll remember he encountered the angels when he was leaving the promised land to go back to Laban, and he built an altar there at Bethel, and he made a vow to God. And the vow was, if you will keep your promises and bring me back safely to my people, then you'll be my God, and this will be your house of worship. And he talks to his wives and says, we got to go back home. God has called me back home. And so most commentators believe that he was supposed to end up in Bethel and that he falls short of where he was supposed to go. He's about 20 miles from Bethel, if you look at these places on a map, um, which means it wasn't that much further to go to be obedient to what God was calling him to. Another support for that is in 35, chapter 35, where God commands him to go to Bethel. Um, So again, most commentators believe that he was supposed to have gone to Bethel and that putting himself here um, is is an act of disobedience or at least an act of half obedience. Um, And we're going to see the turmoil that ensues because of that. Um, But we see here Jacob, instead of following Esau, he settles down, begins to rebuild his flocks because you remember he gave a bunch of it away to Esau, um, settles into Shechem near the city, buys from Hamor and Shechem, who's Shechem's father, These two guys show up in chapter 34, uh, purchases a piece of property similar to Abraham purchasing a piece of property for burial purposes um, and begins to settle here, builds an altar to God. And then chapter 34 is where we pick up today. Our summary sentence, and for those of you that are visiting, I always give a summary sentence at the beginning of the sermon. This is where we're going today. This is what I want you to walk away with. This is the main point of today's sermon, and we're going to spend the rest of our time unpacking it. So we've got an adult version and our kids version for those that are uh, younger in our congregation today that are taking notes. Our summary sentence for today, the righteous must oppose evil and seek justice in a manner that brings honor to God. The righteous must oppose evil and seek justice in a manner that brings honor to to God. For our kids, Christians should hate evil without hating people. Um... We see evil happen in chapter 34. We see some grotesque evil, some evil that should have never happened. We see what I would classify as an evil response to the evil that occurs to Jacob's people here. We see Jacob, and we're going to talk about a lot of missteps by Jacob once again in this chapter. And again, we've seen a lot of flaws in Jacob. Um, And again, it just points to the gospel and the fact that that God works in Jacob's life and accepts him based on the work of Christ and not his good works. And it's assurance to us that within our own flaws, that our justification is based on Christ and his work and not our good works. Uh, But Jacob, for all of his flaws in this chapter, is at least grieved at the end of this chapter about the stench that has been created by this act. He says, I'm concerned that we now stink to the people of this land. Remember, we're supposed to be here to be a blessing. We're supposed to be here to point people to Yahweh. We're gonna, we're gonna eventually be used to wipe this, this place out of sinful people, people that, that don't want to yield to Yahweh. But we know people like Rahab and Ruth were brought into the Israelite nation. They submitted to the God of Israel. Ruth says, your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Rahab, before they invade Jericho, says, take me back with you. Take me to your God. He's the creator. He's the one. He's the only, the only deity that can save me. So there were people in Canaan that submitted to the God of Israel, and that was the, the hope is that Israel would be an extension, a gospel extension to rescue people into that group of people. Here, Jacob is very concerned about the reputation now, and he's also fearful for the fact that this now puts his jeopardy in, in or his life in jeopardy. 
Um, so as we work through this, I want us to see that the righteous are supposed to oppose evil. Like it's right to be angry at what happens in this story. We should seek justice, but in a manner that results in God being honored and not disgraced, okay? Um, and so for our kids, understanding that we should hate evil, but it shouldn't lead us to hate and, and seek vengeance against other people, okay? Some introductory thoughts here. First of all, the chapter begins and ends essentially with a question. Um, there's not a question format at the beginning of chapter four, but that first paragraph leads you, leaves you asking, how's this gonna work itself out? Uh, we have a violation here. We have the Canaanite people who have come into Jacob's family, taken his daughter and abused her. What is going to be the ramifications of this? So there's this question. Then we see a bunch of events unfold. And then the chapter concludes with a question. Basically, Jacob's saying, I'm not okay with how you guys handled this. And his son's responding and saying, what were we gonna do? Let, her, let them treat her like a prostitute? Like basically, they're, they're, they're justifying their actions. They're saying, look, what other option did we have? And essentially, as their father, what other, what other option did you give us? And we're going to see Jacob completely disconnect from this situation and gives no guidance. He's the, he's the patriarch of the family now. He's the, the spiritual leader, the guider of his family, and he offers no wisdom and no guidance in this situation. So these, these immature brothers who are probably late teens, early 20s, their basic response is, you weren't gonna do anything about this. And so we did something, right or wrong, we did something about it. What were we supposed to do? So the chapter ends and begins and ends with the question about how to respond to the injustice towards Dinah. Um, This chapter also, it's very clear that no one is righteous in this chapter. Um, Don't feel sorry for the Shechemites in in this because while they get deceived and they get slaughtered, obviously a portion of them were sinful, Shechem and his dad were aware of what Shechem had done. But the overall motivation for why they go through the circumcision, if you, if you pick up on it as you're reading through it, the desire was to swallow up Israel and make them Shechemites. Okay, so their desire is to basically bring them in and give them a, a new God and a new way of life and absorb them into their culture. And on top of that, they are motivated to be circumcised because they, because they want Jacob's family's stuff. Like that's, what, that's the incentive offered to them. Men, if you'll get circumcised, it'll work out good for you because we're gonna take all this people's stuff. Like you're gonna get all of it. We're gonna, we're gonna absorb them and swallow them up. So a lot of deception in, in this chapter, not just from the Israelites, but also from the Shechemites. Um, both groups are deceptive. Both wanna do away with the other, right? Uh, Jacob's brothers, they want to kill everybody. And essentially, the Shechemites want to kill the nation of Israel by absorbing them and, and doing away with this threat because everybody's kind of aware that God is blessing the descendants of Abraham and they are growing and expanding. And everybody's kind of got their eye on them. Remember, as Isaac started to thrive, Abimelech said, your God is clearly real and he is clearly blessing you. So they're kind of on everybody's radar right now, all the surrounding nations. And so um, they want to do away with the threat, basically, and absorb them. I think it's probably worth mentioning here, too, that as we read this, it's easy for us to sit back and read both sides and, and judge both sides and say, both of you guys are evil. The Shechemites are evil for what they do to Dinah. Israel's evil for how they respond to it and fail to see that we probably fit into one of these two categories. 
Um, because as you dialogued, and I was listening to your dialogue about how should this story have gone, a lot of responses were, you'd have to hold me back too if this happened to my daughter. Um, every good old boy in the South, if you, if you pose this scenario, is going to talk about getting a gun and a truck and going and taking care of it themselves, right? And as dads, that's probably the initial response that you're feeling. If somebody were to harm one of my children, I'm going to do something about it. Um, and we're going to talk about how to, to reconcile some of those fleshly desires. And I think that's why this is, this is an important chapter, because if left to our flesh, if this ever, God forbid, were to happen to somebody here where a child was, was harmed, the fleshly response would be potentially very similar to this. Maybe not to this extreme, but could be very similar. And, and as believers, as people who desire to walk in the spirit, who need their minds transformed, it necessitates us pausing and saying, okay, what is the fleshly response here? Because it seems like that's what Simeon and Levi do, the fleshly response. If put into a similar situation, I too would respond fleshly unless I transform my mind. Now, God forbid this would not happen to, uh, to any of us, but it happens all the time in the world and we're exposed to it through the news. And oftentimes we have conversations with people at work, family members, well, if that ever happened, this is what I would do. So while this will probably never happen, it does come up in conversation a lot where we role play and demonstrate our heart and demonstrate our mindset when we dialogue with people about what we would do in a situation like this. And I think it's just as important for us to have a spiritual mindset about what we would do when talking with people, whether we ever have to experience this and respond to it or not. So I think we need to be careful that we don't pass judgment too quickly um, because we may fall into one of these two categories. And on the, on the other side, okay, so we could fall into the side of the Israelites where we respond in inappropriately. But on the other side, as, as people within our church fight lust and the sin of lust, let us not disconnect from the fact that when we give into that sin, it is very similar to what happens here. This man saw, he desired, and he took for himself, okay? And that, and that is a, a heinous crime towards this girl. Unless we condemn, as, as King David condemned when he heard the story from the prophet, and the prophet turned and said, you are that man. Let's not become so self-righteous that we miss the fact that we may be guilty of this on a much lesser degree, but in giving into that sin, it's very similar to the tragedy of what's happening here. So as we approach this, let's see ourselves potentially in this chapter and how to get out of this chapter and to learn from the experiences of this chapter. All right. Um, and then another thought here before we jump in, it reminds us of the divine origin of scripture. Because if this is man-made, you leave this chapter out. Right? If this isn't driven by the Holy Spirit and I'm trying to write about my heroes, I leave this one out because my heroes look very human here. They look very sinful and very worldly. And this is a nod to the fact that the Holy Spirit is inspirational behind this story being included in Scripture. All right, as we jump into our notes here, point number one, halfway obedience leads to possible disobedience. For our kids, when I don't obey God, it might hurt others around me. Halfway obedience leads to possible disobedience. We said here at the beginning, Jacob settles in Succoth and then Shechem rather than Bethel. We already talked about the fact that he pitches his tent very close to the city to where it's in within eyesight. 
And this is halfway obedience if, in fact, as again, most scholars believe, he was supposed to go to Bethel. I mean, he's barely in the promised land right here. And he falls short of where he made that big vow about coming back and making God his God. And he's probably been dwelling here for 10 plus years because Dinah and her brothers were very young when they left Laban. So they've had to grow and develop here. One, for Dinah to to fall prey to this, but two, for the brothers to be able to rally the troops and take care of the other men in the village. Um, So he's been here maybe 10, 15 years, 20 miles from where he's probably supposed to end up. And it leads to all kinds of turmoil for his family. Because if he's at Bethel, Dinah doesn't get harmed. The brothers don't overreact. And he doesn't become a stench to everybody in the land. Halfway obedience. We read a story to um, uh, A.J. and uh, Abram called Halfway Herbert. It's written by Francis Chan. If you don't have any of Francis Chan's book and you have kids, I'd encourage you to get them. They're on Amazon. They have great, uh, great spiritual uh, connotations with the stories that he writes, and he really ties that into Scripture. And one of them is Halfway Herbert, and it's about a kid who is always halfway obedient to what his parents tell him to do, tell him to brush his teeth. He brushes the bottom teeth, not the top teeth. And there's a picture of his gnarly cavity-ridden teeth, and um, he eats half of his sandwich, and he's always hungry because he doesn't finish his meals, and he's just a halfway guy. Um, He does everything halfway, and he tells half-truths and gets himself into trouble, and you know, by the end of the story, his dad has a conversation with him and tells him he can't keep living his life halfway, and how God demands full obedience and submission to him, and um, the kid gets saved, and, and his name is just now Herbert instead of halfway Herbert, and Jacob's being halfway Herbert here. He's, he's halfway obeying what God's told him to do. He's come back home, but he's settled in here. Um, why would he settle here? Because there's financial advantage to being here. Um, this is a great place to grow, your, to grow your crops back after giving them away to Esau. It's a, it's a lush environment, much for the reason that Lot chose Sodom because it was financially advantageous for him. And too often parents are driven to locate their family somewhere because of the financial advantages. And we talked back when we talked about Lot and his decision to live where he lived, that the spiritual has to drive us as believers. Where I choose to live and how it affects my involvement with church, like, like that needs to be paramount for why I choose where I choose to live and, and not so much the financial advantage because the financial advantage puts his family in jeopardy. Dinah is enticed by the world around her because of this decision. It says that she desires to go and to, to be with the women of the land. It says, now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. You'll remember that the plan for Israel is to remain separated from the Canaanites. We get more detail about this later on, but in Leviticus chapter 18, verse 24, Do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things, for by all these nations I am driving out before you have become unclean. The land became unclean, so I punished its iniquity, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. goes on to describe their wickedness. These aren't innocent people here. These are wicked people, and when their wickedness is filled up, God expels them from the land. Deuteronomy chapter 7 talks about the fact that they're not to intermarry with these people. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, goes on to list those nations, Uh, they're more numerous and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. 
for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. So he, he, he puts his family near a city that is a spiritual danger to his family. Okay, They're supposed to stay separated from him. Um, the lack of separation leads to Dinah's temptation. She wants to hang out with the same ladies who repulsed her grandparents. Remember, uh, Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebecca said, our boys aren't marrying the girls of these, these lands. Right? They're wicked, they're evil, they're sinful. We don't want our boys around these girls. Here Dinah goes gallivating off into the night to, to be with these same women. Um, for whatever reason, we don't know if she was friends with these girls or, or whatnot, but she leaves and ventures into the city. And according to their culture, she should have been chaperoned. Um, a, a girl of meritable age was not permitted to wander the streets um, without a chaperone, and she's treated violently for that. Um, the word used here for how she's treated is, is the same word used for the affliction that Israel would endure in Egypt. Remember, Abraham received the prophecy that his people would be would be persecuted and punished and, and disciplined and, you know, by the Egyptian people, and they were going to wreak havoc upon them. And it was going to be a difficult 400 years. Same wordage is used for how Dinah is treated by this individual, this man Shechem. And maybe what you don't pick up on is that he doesn't let her go. He doesn't let her go. Like, she's still in his house when the boys go in to, to take her back. Like, she's not a part of the negotiations because they don't know where she's at. She's still, she's still in his house. She's still in his home. He never lets her go. He seizes her, takes her, and then goes to try to convince them to let her be his wife. But he doesn't bring her along. She's still, she's still in bondage in his house. Verse 17 and verse 26 allude to that. Halfway obedience by her father leads to everything that transpires in this chapter. He knew what he was supposed to do. He does it partially, puts his family in jeopardy. The implication for us is we must work to avoid putting others in harm's way, either through our disobedience or our own poor decision-making. And we talk about this at times when, when as elders, we're counseling individuals through sin in our church, and, and we talk about the fact that, hey, this isn't just a you issue. Your sin affects everybody around you. Your sin could potentially disqualify you from being able to serve faithfully within our church, which means other people have to step up and serve in your place because you're unable to. Sin affects everyone around us, okay? So Jacob's sin, him failing to go where God had called him to go, puts his children in in harm's way. And as believers, we must work to avoid putting others in harm's way, either through our disobedience or our poor decision-making. Number two, Pulling things out of a crazy chapter here. Number two, indifferent leadership leads to improper leadership. Indifferent leadership leads to improper leadership. And for our kids, as I'm growing, I need to look to older people to guide me. And hopefully they'll be there for you because they weren't here in this case. Indifferent leadership leads to improper leadership. For our kids, as I'm growing, I need to look to older people to guide me, and we hope that those older people are there doing their job. Because here's what happens. It says in verse 5, so everything's happened in verses 1 through 4. Verse 5, now Jacob heard that he had uh, defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock in the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came. 
The, the rape of Dinah here leads to indifference in Jacob. Um, nobody, <laughs> there, I couldn't come across one scholar that really excused Jacob's inactivity in this situation. Um, the fact that it even says that he had to wait for his sons to get home to do anything. For me, I can, I can guarantee you, I'm still working through what the appropriate Christian response is to this situation, but I can tell you, I don't need to wait for AJ and Abram to get off work and come home for me to start doing something if I find out that Mally has been uh, hurt, right? Like, I'm going to do something. I don't, I don't need to wait for them to get home, and there's a lot of indifference here. And then when the negotiations start to play out, Jacob's not involved in it. Like, Jacob's completely absent from it. Most scholars agree that he just kind of disconnects and dismisses himself from, from really engaging in the negotiations. Simeon and Levi basically have to step up. Now, why Simeon and Levi? Because they're her true brothers, okay? Like, this is Leah's daughter, okay? Which, again, points to the fact that Jacob's indifferent because it doesn't, she doesn't belong to Rachel, right? Like, this is the favoritism coming out in this family once again. We see him get emotional when Rachel's kids are in danger, right? Like when, when they come back and say, here's Jacob, or here's Joseph's coat, like an animal got him. I mean, he's just weeping and broken. And then when he thinks Benjamin's life is in jeopardy, I mean, he's, he's super emotional. This is Dinah, Leah's daughter. And we don't see a lot of emotion. We don't see a lot of activity from him, which again is a nod to the fact that he is not performing as a husband and a father like he's supposed to be. Jacob waits until the brothers return. And then he waits for the dad of this guy to come and initiate. Like, that's what's crazy to me, too. Like, at a minimum, I'm knocking on this guy's dad's door if Mally's been hurt by, by some boy. Right? At a minimum, I can, I can say that some way I can Christian respond to this by at least going and visiting the dad versus him having to come and see me at my house. But that's what happens. The dad of the, of the, of the culprit, the dad of the, uh, of the oppressor here is the one who comes and says, yeah, we need to probably fix this, clean this up a little bit. Um, and that's when the brothers come storming in, right? Like they're, they're freaking out about this. I mean, they, they are super emotional about this. And the brothers have to assume negotiations to rescue Dinah. They're ready to do something as soon as they're informed about it. And we don't see Jacob again until the end of the chapter. And he only becomes concerned when his life is in jeopardy. Because look what it says at the end of 34. This is an indifferent dad providing indifferent leadership. It says, then Jacob, Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few. If they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed. This is just like his granddad and his dad, right? Who were ready to usher their wife off to another man don't kill me, this is my sister, if you want her, take her, right? Like this is, this is Jacob and his story where he's like, it's really more about my safety than my kid's safety, right? There's no discussion, there's no grief over Dinah and her safety by her dad. The love for Dinah leads to restitution by Hamor and Shechem. The father and son show up and try to make things right. What's crazy is that this father and son duo is unified, whereas God's people, father and sons, are not unified in this. They show up and they're unified in what they want to do. Um, what's disappointing is there's no remorse over the act, right? Like they only show up for the marital purposes. Um, they don't show up to say, hey, 
junior here messed up and, and really did something awful, and I'm here to make things right, um, and I'm not okay with, he, with what he did, right? Like, that's not the attitude here. More than likely, because this is a common act. Now, I, I heard one group talking about the, um, the law of right and wrong and how cultures know the difference between right and wrong, and you'll remember Abimelech both Abimelechs were grieved over the fact, or the, Abimelech and Pharaoh were both grieved over the fact that the possibility of, of, of being with another man's wife almost fell upon them, and they weren't okay with that because in their culture, that wasn't okay. So there's at least a moral code that these people would have kept when it came to sexuality. Um, but here, where this woman doesn't belong to a man, seems to be more of a common thing. Dad's not upset about it. Shechem doesn't seem to think that he's really done anything wrong. There's no restitution for the wrong part of this, but they do want to come and make things right as far as um, getting the family to agree to the marriage. Um, these are two different peoples, people groups with, two different, with different standards about how this should play out. The lust for Dinah leads to vulnerability for Shechem. We see Shechem here really driven by his emotions, and this is a chapter where people are driven exclusively by their emotions. God's not mentioned at all. God's people don't seek his guidance in this, Everybody's driven by their emotions, and Shechem is, is the one who kind of gets, gets it started. Um, it says, the soul of my son, verse 8, Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. And then he jumps in. Um, Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, let me find favor in your eyes. Whatever you say to me, I'll give you. Ask me for as great a bride price and gift as you will, and I'll give you whatever you say to me. Like He gives up his negotiating power here. Like there would have been a set standard rate for dowry that you would pay to gain this girl to be your wife. He just, buys, he just steps away from that and, and really loses all negotiating grounds and says, name the price. I want her that bad. Whatever you say, I'll give you. I mean, he's just completely engulfed in his emotions, makes him vulnerable to the deception that he, that he falls under and, and ultimately costs him his life because he's completely driven by emotion in this situation. Um. The lust for possessions leads to vulnerability for his dad and his people, right? Like dad jumps in and says, yeah, this is a great idea. Why don't we all get married? And why don't we all become a big family? And we can all buy and trade with each other and increase our wealth. And, and then goes back to the men of the city and says, why don't we do this? Why don't we all get circumcised so that we can take their stuff? And, and they're completely deceived, completely deceived because they too, driven by their emotions, the proposed goal of intermarriage with the Shechemites is that the, the Israelites will prosper, right? Like that's the pitch they give to Jacob's boys. If you'll do this, if you'll get married to our people, we'll give you land, we'll give you safety, we'll give you success. And if you step back and think about it, you're like, why are we even talking about this? Because God's already promised those things to us, right? Like you're offering us land Newsflash, this is our land, right? Like you're offering us success. Newsflash, I'm gonna have descendants that outnumber the stars in the sand. Like I don't need, like it, it, it reeks a little bit of Satan in the, in the uh, wilderness offering Jesus things that already belong to him, right? Like this temptation of sin here to, to give themselves to this people and become one with them and, and ultimately accept their culture and their God. You're promising things that already belong to me. I don't need your offer here. Thankfully, the, the, the boys are driven by a different emotion. They're not even really listening to these negotiations. Um, but the proposed goal, um, 
with the Shechemites from their end is they want to swallow up Israel. We already said that. The injustice towards Dinah leads to revenge by Simeon and Levi. Their drastic reaction shows some of their immaturity. But they're allowed to follow through with this again because dad's not leading well. Jacob should have been making the call here. This is his daughter. These are his sons. He's not a part of the negotiations. He's there at least for a portion of it, but doesn't respond. The boys are the ones that make the deal. They're the ones that counter-offer. And they counter-offer, and, and, and again, they are right to be angry about this. And so when we talk about a Christian response, we should be angry about these type of things. Like this type of evil being done to an individual it should create anger inside of us. Righteous anger, where we want this sin to be dealt with. They're immature, and because the, the, the older leadership doesn't guide their emotions, their emotions carry itself out, and there's a lot of zeal and a lot of passion, and it's misdirected here. A lack of leadership from their father leads them to take matters into their own hands, a lack of appreciation for the covenant leads them to profane the covenant sign with deception. As people joined Israel later on, like they, were, they would get circumcised. They would get circumcised. And it was to be a sign of, of, of the cutting away of the old man. And, and it was a sign that at our core, at our reproductive core, we are sinful and we're in need of salvation and they take that precious covenant sign given to Abraham and they use it as a tool of deception. And it's, a, it's a, an expression of how little they valued the covenant at this point to take what had been given as a sign of hope and making that now a sign of destruction. And we'll come back and talk about that here in a minute. In an attempt to avenge Dinah, the brothers ravage the city. All right, so Shechem and his dad agree to it. They have dollar signs. One's got dollar signs in his eyes and the other has love hearts popping out of his head. And, you know, they both go back home and say, if, if we can get you guys to do this, it's going to be great for everybody. Um, they fail to mention that it's really motivated to give Shechem what he wants and they try to twist it and make it all about the whole population. But now everybody's got dollar signs in their heads and they say, yep, put us under the knife. Whatever needs to happen, we want their stuff. And, 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 as a testimony to the fact that, that they're blinded by their emotions, they all get circumcised at the same time, right? Like they, they leave themselves voluntarily vulnerable to an attack here. Everybody's circumcised. And it's the third day when the recovery process is the worst. And potential fever sets in and weakness and soreness. And these guys are laying around and and really are, are unable to defend themselves. And that's when the boys, and probably with help, probably not just these two guys, probably some of their servants that have come along that helped tend the flocks, maybe some of the other brothers, but it's certainly driven by them. And they step in and they handle this situation according to their emotions, and they destroy the city. They take everything. They're grieved and angry about their sister, but it's a... Um, an excessive response, I think, to what happens here. Shechem had hoped to swallow up Israel, but Israel ends up swallowing up Shechem and brings back the children and the women and all their stuff. And that's where Jacob greets them. The implication here, leaders, especially dads here in our church, need to embrace their role of exercising wisdom in situations where the right answer isn't always clear in order to avoid overzealous responses by the immature. 
You need leadership and the wisdom that God has given to those leaders to certainly be present in situations where the right answer isn't absolutely clear. Because if you're not careful, you have people that are zealous about something, passionate about something, that want to move and go and do, and, and it ends up disastrous potentially. And that's where leadership is so important, leadership in the family, leadership in the church, to protect against emotionally driven decision-making. You need people who are, who are of sound mind, right? Like the, the qualifications of deacons and elders, it's so important because what it shows is that they're not driven by anything but the Spirit, really. They're not given into substances. They're not given into their emotions, right? They're not quick to anger. They're not, they don't have bad tempers. They're of sound judgment, and they can lead well because they're submitted to God's Spirit and to the wisdom that comes from that. Here, Jacob, which the temptation would be for all of us when you're in a situation, and I think I have to fight against this sometimes. There's situations in our church where I'd like to just leave it and go home and go to sleep and not have to worry about it. Right, like the easy thing is, yeah, I'm just gonna pretend like that's not even there. Like that's nah, that's not an issue. But when you're in a position of leadership, when you're in a position of leadership, you have to lead well, and you have to rely on God's wisdom, and you have to act because leadership will rise by somebody. If the leaders aren't leading, somebody else will, and that's really what happens here with the brothers. Their response at the end is, "You weren't gonna do anything, so we weren't gonna let our sister be treated like a prostitute, and so we did something about it." Right or wrong, we weren't going to just sit back like you were doing. Leaders have to lead well. This crisis came, Jacob disconnected, and he left the immature to decide for themselves. All right, uh, last point here. Vengeful responses lead to gospel hindrances. Vengeful responses lead to gospel hindrances. For our kids, if I try to get back at somebody, it hurts my chances of sharing Jesus with them. Vengeful responses lead to gospel hindrances. That's the, the one redeeming thing about Jacob here is that he is concerned about the reputation of his family now in the land. We've become stinky to the inhabitants of this land. There's a stench that goes forth. What people think about now when they hear about my family is not good. Um, and so it's going to become a gospel hindrance for them. You know, um, the, the sign of the blessing is now a reminder to everybody of Israel's dishonesty. I mean, think about the gospel hindrance here specifically for them. You move on, you're, you're trying to get away from the people that might get mad at you, and so you move on, and stories start spreading, and you're, you're out talking to somebody, and guy's like, hey, you know, I've heard about your God, and yeah, like you should come be a part of what's going on over here in Israel. Like you can join us and great. Like what do I need to do? Well, you, you, need, you have to get circumcised. Like that's part of becoming an Israelite. And the guy's like, no, no, I, no, I know what happens when, I know what you guys do when you do that. Like you, you, you like to render us unable to defend ourselves. You, that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a trick, right? Like, no, 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 no. Like, like that was a one-time thing. Like they have to battle now against a misperception of what the covenant sign even is used for. They just obliterated a group of people by using their religion to deceive. And now they're supposed to be a light to the nations and people that come and be a part of Israel are supposed to be circumcised. Now you gotta work against this history. Um, and Jacob's concerned about that and rightfully so. For us, I mean, think about this. For us to, to respond to even lesser situations than this, um, 
I deal with this with Trinity parents. Um, they come in and they're, they're ready to fight because so-and-so called my kid a name. And, and I've told them if that continues to happen, that they can fight back. It, you know, so-and-so kind of nudged them in the hallway. And I said, if he keeps nudging you, then I want you to deck him. Like you defend yourself. And I'm always like, let's just stop for a second here. Like we have yet to have a situation where somebody really needed to defend themselves, right? Like we got middle school students that are working out things and they got all kinds of things going on that have to be worked out for sure. Um, but I've seen a lot of parents who are ready to be very vengeful and encourage their kids to be vengeful and oftentimes encourage them to take it to the next level because that's exactly what happens here, right? Like you violated my daughter, we kill you. Um, you took it to a whole different level. And it's important for us as, as believers who are striving to walk in the spirit to make sure that our minds are constantly being transformed because while this is an extreme story, we're put in situations constantly where we are reacting to situations and if we're not careful, we're driven by our emotions and potentially become a gospel hindrance to the people that we're talking to. We'll get into that here more as we, as we wrap up. But Israel here is, is in jeopardy of being a gospel hindrance because of how they've acted here. Jacob says we've become a stench in the land. Now, Simeon and Levi are held responsible for their actions, not so much here. Like Jacob doesn't really sit them down and really do much here. But if you, and we'll get to this in Genesis 49, 5 through 7, just so you know, it is coming. There's kind of a curse applied to them because of their reaction to this situation. It took Jacob a long time to get his thoughts together, but he, he actually does, as a parent, kind of bring down discipline upon them on his deathbed. The unanswered question to close the chapter points to Jacob's faults. Right or wrong, the brothers weren't going to tolerate the act. With proper leadership, their emotions could have possibly been tamed. So the implication for us, or our fleshly responses to our circumstances, can hinder our gospel influence. That's important for us to note. Our fleshly responses to our circumstances, whether it's revolving, involving our kids or not, just in general, when we respond in a fleshly way to our circumstances, it can possibly hinder the gospel. If we are showing a lack of trust in God's provision, a lack of trust in his promises, trying to work things out on our own, and then we try to follow that up with, you should trust in the God that I trust in, it just doesn't translate well. So the implication, there are correct and wise ways to respond to evil and mature leaders should take the responsibility for guiding others. There are correct and wise ways to respond to evil. And when it's not clear how to do so, mature leaders should take the responsibility for guiding others. All right, let's close with the application. Christians versus enemies. Two questions that, that I want us to ponder, and then I'm going to give you a couple of ways to answer it. Um, one, how should this story have transpired? And number two, how should a Christian respond in a similar situation today? How should this story have transpired? Um, I think all of us hopefully probably agree that this was an excessive, emotionally driven response. I don't think any of us would high-five each other if this happened and this was our response. Like, I don't think any of us would say, you did what you should have done. Um, so it begs the question, well, what should these brothers have done? Um, and you could potentially argue, well, maybe they should have only gone and killed Shechem. Like, he was the one responsible. Leave the city alone, but go perform justice to the man that harmed your daughter. Again, it's taking it to a different level, right? Um, 
But to kill Shechem, we've already seen he's really influential in this city. Like his dad's a big leader. It would have incited a war probably. So at the end of the day, you would have involved everybody had you tried to kill the son. Here's what's striking to me. And it's a little different because in context, we're talking about Israelite and Israelite. But you may be surprised that there's provisions for this very same thing happening in God's law. In Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 28, how many of you are familiar with this passage? It says, If a man, Shechem, meets a virgin, Dinah, who is not betrothed, seizes her, lies with her, and they are found, then the man who lay with her shall give to the father of the young woman 50 shekels of silver. She shall be his wife because he has violated her. He may not divorce her all of his days. That, that's the answer to the situation if it's Israelite versus Israelite. Now, again, I don't know that you can argue for certain that this is to be the case if it's outside of Israel, but this is what God says later on is supposed to happen within that nation. If this happens, the man owes you a bunch of money, he owes you the big dowry price, and he's supposed to take her and show value to her and marry her and can never divorce her. Like, it's really a strike against the man. Like, you want the, the pleasure that comes with this relationship, you will embrace all of the responsibility that comes with it as well. You're not allowed to discard her. You'll remember when Amnon and Tamar get hooked up and, and, and he wants to just be done with her. She says, if you discard me, this will be worse than what you just did to me. And God makes provisions for the woman here. He says, you're not gonna discard her and make her uh, undesirable to another man later in her life. You will take her and own her and, and take care of her. Um, well, what if the dad doesn't like the arrangement? Well, there's provisions for that too. It says in Exodus 22, 16 through 17, if a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. The dad doesn't have to give her over, but there's still payment that's supposed to be made. So does that satisfy our anger towards the situation? I gotta be honest, I don't know that it would for me. Um, but, but there was some provision in the law, like this potentially was gonna happen a lot more. And God said, this is how it should transpire because we're not gonna react and have brothers start killing everybody in, in vengeful uh, acts towards what, the, what this guy has done. God says, that's not the right way to respond to it. Here is the right way. You, you work it out with the other party. There's, there's a price that's paid, which again, doesn't translate today because we don't do that um, here. But there was restitution that was put into the law for how to handle these type of situations. Second Samuel 13, 16 is that passage with Tamar, um, if you want to look at that later. So how should a Christian respond today? Two, two things that I want to leave, two passages that I want us to turn, to, or if you want to turn to, you can. If not, you just want to write them down, you can too. Luke chapter 6, 27 through 31. But I say to you here, uh, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Romans chapter 12, verse 9. This is how we treat our enemies. 
And if you're wondering who, who are your enemies, I can guarantee you somebody hurts one of my children, they definitely become my enemy. They definitely fall into this category. Um, Romans 12, 9, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, seek to show hospitality, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, live in harmony with one another, do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome by evil. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, I'm not going to tell you specifically this situation. This is how you're supposed to act in it. I want to leave you with some guiding principles. Okay, so I'm not going to tell you that you're wrong to do something differently in a given situation. I'm not going to paint a picture for you of something that happens and then tell you exactly how you're supposed to respond. We can dialogue about that on a separate occasion, but I do think there's some driving principles from Romans 12 and Luke 6 that we can at least use to transform our minds and get us thinking in the right direction in how to respond, not emotionally, but spiritually and biblically. Because here's the thing, at the end of the day, I want how I respond to situations to be tied to what scripture tells me to do. Like I'm, I'm far more confident in proceeding in situations if I, can, if I can know that I'm being led by scriptural principles. And these are scriptural principles that we can pull from here. Why well, love our enemies? Number one, it reveals God's character to others. For our kids, loving my enemies helps my enemies know that God can love them too. Psalm 103. Okay, so I think however we're handling a, a situation with an enemy, um, it, it's got to be done in such a way that God's character is revealed. According to Psalm 103, Verse 10, he does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities, right? We serve a God of mercy and grace. We say, well, that's different. No, we killed his son, right? Like we killed his son on a cross. Our sins caused him to hang in death, right? So we're talking about Dinah being abused, but living through it. We killed God's son. Our sins killed him, and he doesn't repay us for our iniquities. He doesn't repay us for our sin, right? Like he demonstrates grace and mercy to us and offers forgiveness. Ephesians 4.32, a passage we looked at um, a couple weeks ago when we were talking about uh, forgiveness. Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Reveals God's character to others when we love our enemies. Number two, it reveals satisfaction with God. It reveals satisfaction with God. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 34. For you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. It says you allowed people to take from you because you realized you had something better, right? There's no enemy on this earth that can do anything or take anything from us if we're fully satisfied in God the way that we're supposed to. 
Like, you can't take our joy. You can't rip that away from us. And it shows that I'm fully satisfied in God. Number three, it reveals present trust. Loving my enemies shows that I trust God. Because thankfully, God has created institutions that handle justice for us, right? Romans chapter 13, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Right? As Christians, we're called to turn the other cheek. You know who is not called to turn the other cheek? Policemen. Right? Like they're part of a a God ordained institution that brings justice to wrongdoing. So you don't get to appeal to a policeman and say, show mercy and grace to me, don't bring justice, and the policeman be in violation of God's law there, right? Like, I'm a tool from God to bring justice. And God has institutions and government in place, and, and, um, uh, you know, the family structure is an institution that that is bringing discipline. We're told to discipline our kids, We're told to respond to their evil and to bring discipline upon them. So there may be spanking involved to to bring discipline upon our children. An institution by God that brings justice. It it gives a background for how do we even understand mercy and grace. When the institutions bring justice and then we as individuals demonstrate grace and mercy. And then number four, and I think probably what is the, the most crucial in the motivation for loving our enemies is that it reveals future hope. Second Thessalonians chapter one, verse six, or verse five. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus has revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. The way we can find satisfaction in our anger is believing that when Jesus comes, he makes all things right, that vengeance belongs to him. And I don't know if this is a direct John Piper quote or if he's just quoting someone else, um, but he ultimately, he talks about the fact that all wrong, all sinful wrong done to us is gonna be paid one way or another. It's either gonna be paid on the cross when that person confesses and repents and turns to him, right? It's paid for by Jesus. God's wrath poured out on Jesus, And if that person doesn't come to confession, then it's paid for in hell for eternity. Like justice will be served and vengeance will come in the right and appropriate way where God gets all the glory and honor. So we can sit back and love our enemies and we can pursue justice and seek justice and not be led by our emotions and do so in a way where we confidently know that Christ will handle all things in the most just way possible as we wait for him to come. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for a difficult passage today. And God, I confess that if put in a similar situation where my kids were at harm, I don't, I don't know how I would respond right now. Um, I know that there would be a lot of emotions running through my mind. God, I want to be led by your spirit and led by your word. 
And so, God, I pray for all of us today that we would be driven to uh, examining our minds and allowing our minds to be transformed by the scripture that we've seen today. Um, God, I know that it starts with us being fully obedient to you. And we see an error here uh, with Jacob not following through. And so, God, I pray for all of us that we would be uh, obedient to your revealed will, where we know that you've called us to be something or to do something, that we would follow through with those things and that we would uh, protect others from being put in harm's way by our sinful decisions. God, help us to, to be led by your spirit and to do the things that we know we're supposed to do. God, I pray for those that are in leadership positions, whether it's uh, leading our families or leading uh, at work or leading within this church. God, I pray that we would lead well, um, that when things are going on in the places where we're responsible for, that we would, we would act decisively and provide wisdom that you've given to us so that others know how to act in certain situations and how to react to certain situations. God, help us to be at best cautious in how we think through these things, realizing that if we're not careful, we venture into the vengeful mindset and you've called us against that. And so while it may not be clear exactly how to seek justice and avoid vengeance, Help us to at least be cautious in our approach, realizing that if we approach things in a vengeful way, we hinder the gospel, that we're not reflecting your character well, um, that we are damaging potentially future conversations by our actions. Um, God, we don't want to be a stench to people that we work with. We don't want to be a stench to people that we live around. We don't want to be a stench to our family members in the way that we act about circumstances. God, protect us from reacting in a fleshly way. Help us not to be driven by our emotions, but instead to immerse ourselves in your word so that when we are faced with difficult circumstances, we can react in a way that's consistent with your word. God, I pray that we would love our enemies and that we would see opportunities to reconcile with them. We would do good to them. That we would allow justice to be handled by the institutions that you've put in place for the time being. And that ultimately we would rest in the fact that Jesus is coming back and that any harm or persecution or, or wrong that's been done to us will be made right. And God, we thank you that, that there is a, uh, a political leader coming, a king who is coming, who will keep all of his promises, um, who will lead well and uphold righteousness and punish wickedness. God, I'm thankful there's coming a day where we will not have enemies that our enemies will be done away with. In the meantime, help us to better understand how to interact with them here in a way that produces glory for you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.